0: All right, well, not only is that a fun song, but it's actually very appropriate to our text this morning. Uh, So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, reading the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod, and Abiod, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Acham, and Acham, the father of Eliud, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who had called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word this morning. And Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, empower me uh, to proclaim your truth clearly and rightly, open eyes and hearts Strengthen us all to receive what you have for us today, for your good or for your glory, and for our good and joy. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. So, if you ever uh, received a gift from someone and you've opened it up and you just wonder, what is this? It's you know, it's it's nice to get a gift, but it's. Really pretty helpful when you know what that gift is and what it's for, and you understand why you got it. And so when you actually receive a gift that you've been anticipating for and longing for for a long time, the, the, the experience is completely different when you open it up, because then you know your, your, kind of your dreams, your wishes, so to speak, are, are fulfilled. You get to enjoy what you've been wanting for a long time. And the elation can be amazing. Now, now, with a toy or something like that, like I remember when I got the skateboard I desperately wanted as a kid, the, the joy ran out fairly quickly, probably as I just realized I wasn't good at it. And so, it, it, you know, that can fade away pretty quickly with a toy or something like that. But there are longings, and there is one longing for sure, that when fulfilled, the joy really should never fade because the weight of what the gift has brought to us. And so when I think about the people of Israel before the birth of Jesus, they had great anticipation. They had longing. They, they had known the promises that God had made to Abraham and, and to David, and they were longing for fulfillment. They knew what God had said. They, they, they knew the, the covenant that he had made with Abraham. If you think of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. On top of that, they'd also been promised via the covenant with David that the throne of David, that his line would be established forever. Second Samuel 7, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But for them, there, there was no rightful king in Israel. Along with that, before the birth of Christ, there had been 400 years of silence. No new word from God. The prophets were silent. And yet still the people knew that they had those promises of God deep in their souls, deep in their hearts. They knew what the prophets had prophesied. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might You can imagine that for so many years the anticipation was strong, even if in in many it was just kind of latent. It was under the surface, but it was ready to well up. But there were people like Simeon. He was a man who who waited in the temple. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was, if, if O come, O come, Emmanuel was around, he was singing that, waiting for him to come. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. He, he was in constant anticipation. And there was longing for the fulfillment of these prophecies, for God to make sure and, and make good His covenant. And so for Matthew, as he starts this work, he's very conscious, I believe, of those longings. And he connects what he is writing, how, how he begins this work. He connects with these expectations, with these longings, with these desires. And the very first verse really sets that tone, doesn't it? the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham here he connects not only with those promises made with Abraham and with David but to actually to the very beginning of scripture the opening phrase, the wording, is the same that you find in Genesis 2-4 and in Genesis 5-1. Uh, it's the book of the genealogy. And in, in chapter 2, it's the, the, the book of the heavens, the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, and, and then in 5, it's of, uh, the book of the genealogy of man. It's the same phraseology, and so a reader would have made that connection and seen in this, and read it in this way, that there's this new chapter beginning, a a new creation that was being brought about by what comes next. And the one who is bringing it about is Jesus Christ. And both of those names actually have significance. Jesus. If you look down at, at verse 21 in this chapter The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, he's Savior. He's the one who will deal with our sin. But then there is also the term Christ or Messiah, or or you could say the anointed one. He's the one empowered, he's the one set apart by God for a specific task. Now, in Scripture, throughout Scripture, there were three types of people who were anointed prophets priests, and kings. They were anointed for specific tasks. Jesus was also anointed, but he was not anointed just to fulfill one of those tasks, one of those roles. He was, appointed, he was anointed as prophet, priest, and king. He's prophet who reveals the truth about himself and our humanity and, and God's will for our salvation. He's priest because in, in, he's our mediator, but also that he offered himself to take away our sin and guilt. And he's king because he's the one who defeated our enemy, our greatest enemy, sin and death. And so he's Jesus Christ, and that leaves us with the last two terms that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And these, will, th- these are going to serve as our structure as we look at the rest of this text, this genealogy of Jesus. And we're going to take Abraham first, even though um, in this beginning part, he, he does the Son of David first. That's partly because I think he emphasizes throughout this work um, Christ being the Son of David throughout Matthew. But here we're going to take that first and, and, and then we'll move to that Davidic connection. And as we do this, okay, wipe your mind right now of how boring you think a genealogy is. Okay, Just please try and remove the whole idea of genealogy and boring together, okay? Because this is not boring. This is actually rather amazing because it shows us who God is. It it shows us in particular the grace of Jesus Christ. It shows us the character of God. And, And also, Matthew writes very purposefully, These names that are included, it's not all-inclusive of of everyone in the line of Jesus, but, but when we grasp who he's talking about, these names, I think, are massively comforting to all of us. Even if you can't pronounce them right, they're still massively comforting to each of us. Some of these people we know very little to nothing about, yet they are an encouragement, so I want you to be comforted by this amazing list of names. So we begin with Abraham it's the son of Abraham. Now, overall, this genealogy is broken down into three sections, and you can see that in your Bibles, and each with 14, 14 names, and uh, we'll see more of that in, in verse 17 as, as Matthew actually says that. And the first of these is from Abraham to David. It's what we would call the, the pre-monarchical period. It's before a king. And as we saw above, God had made a covenant with Abraham that set the the people of, of Abraham, that set the people of Israel apart as the people of God. And all the nations were to be blessed through Abraham. The blessing would come through his offspring. And that idea is picked up here in the gospel in the very beginning through Jesus. It's also picked up and kind of as a bookend at the end of the work. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, go to, to every nation with this good news. Be a blessing to all the nations. So that that covenant promise of being a blessing is is being fulfilled, and there's implication from the very beginning that Jesus is going to be the one who does that. He's the Messiah, the, the, the one of Abraham. Now, after we read Abraham here, the text moves through his lineage to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, and the text says, and his brothers, which is an interesting thing to write. Why why say his brothers here? Well, one, his brothers were important in, in the, the realm of, of, of the history of, of God's people. They're the patriarchs. But Judah, who was not the firstborn, okay, so much came through the firstborn. Judah, who was not the firstborn, is the one in whom the line of the Messiah, the line of the, the, the Christ will come. So, even in this, we, we begin to see that the association with the Christ, with the Messiah, with this anointed one to come, is not based on age or birth order or merit. It's based solely on the grace of God. It's based on his sovereign grace. And then we read in verse 3 And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, here is the first mention of a woman in this text very much atypical of Near Eastern genealogies. They did not include the women, so why include it here? Why include Tamar? Tamar actually, Tamar gives us insight into Judah, okay, and and really even into Jesus himself in many ways, and we'll pick that up in a bit. But in Genesis, we're we're told that it's through Judah that the Messiah would come. We're told that the the scepter shall not depart from Judah, Um, Genesis 49. We also see Judah as this this man who who stood up and and offered himself as as surety for Benjamin so that his father wouldn't lose his youngest son, the the, the son of his his beloved wife. He, he, He showed great valor and all this kind of thing. But that's actually not what they're talking about when they mention Judah here. That's not what Matthew is referring to. Matthew highlights, and instead what he writes is, as one commentator said, of the immoral act that made him the father of Perez and Zerah by his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. Having mistaken her for a common harlot, for she was veiled when the act occurred, he had made her pregnant. Subsequently, when he was informed that Tamar, through harlotry, had conceived, he had ordered her burned to death. This command was rescinded when Tamar had furnished proof that her father-in-law himself was the chief culprit. That's, that's not exactly the story that you would tell at a Thanksgiving dinner with your family. And then from there comes a list of people that honestly we, we just don't know a whole lot about, except we can place them in the, the time of the Exodus and the, and the time in Egypt, the, the events tied with that. And then we come to two more women and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So who was Rahab? Rahab was a Gentile. She was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, who uh, um, hid the spies, was faithful in that way, but she was a prostitute. She was spared when Israel sacked the city she was not an Israelite, and she was not even really a respectable foreigner in many ways, according to her, um, her vocation. And then came Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And, you know, it's hard to keep up with all the Old Testament history, but what that meant was that the Mo- being a Moabite, she was actually under a special curse. Because the Moabites had not given... Um, uh, Provisions and, and cared for the Israelites when they came out. And, and so the, uh, she's under a curse. But yet, this text tells us that this harlot and a Moabite woman under a curse were not, they were actually in the line of the great King David. Now, think about this: including women was one thing, it, it, it wasn't normal. But if you were going to include women, who would you have included if you wrote this? Sarah, maybe Rebecca, some of the the, the patriarch's wives, these these women of faith who did great things. But instead, Matthew includes Gentiles, Rahab and Ruth, who were for certain Gentiles. And as we move forward, we're likely going to see another. These women, what we see in this is these women really ignore the men, we're the most upstanding or moral people that you would want to highlight in your family line? You know, these are the branches that we try to hide or maybe even trim off and bury a little bit. But the amazing thing is God doesn't do that. God actually grafts these branches into his tree, and it's a beautiful thing. He doesn't shy away from the sin and the pain and the brokenness. He entered into that world in Jesus Christ, and I love what Calvin wrote. He said, this was a prelude to that emptying of himself of which Paul speaks. The Son of God might have kept his descent unspotted and pure from every reproach or mark of infamy, but he came into the world to empty himself himself and take upon him the form of a servant, to be a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people, and at length to undergo the accursed death of the cross. He therefore did not refuse to admit a stain into his genealogy, arising from incestuous intercourse, which took place among his ancestors. Every name we have read so far and that we will read in its own way, tells us of the unexpected and the unlikely and the beautiful grace of God. They also reinforce that God is absolutely able to keep His promises. It doesn't take everything going just perfectly for God to keep His promises. His covenant made with Abraham that his family line would be a blessing to the nations. That is kept even in this mess, and, you know, that messiness only continues once we get to David. In the second and third section, we move to the monarchical period, the time of the king and, uh, until the exile, and then in the last section, the exile to the Messiah himself. And it begins right in many ways where it left off. The second half of verse 6, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, think about that for a second. That doesn't sound right, does it? Why would David be the father of a child by another man's wife? Don't read over that too quickly. Something's a bit off here. This this feels a bit shady because it absolutely was. It was royally shady. Pardon that pun, sorry. it, it's the reality, and it makes the point that even our heroes aren't very good heroes. They are flawed heroes. They're all flawed. David was a sinner. He, he, I, he went for the, I don't know how to say, the ten fecta instead of the trifecta. Like, he went after every Ten commandment as he dealt with Bathsheba and everything else here. He, he just decided to break them all. But when he was confronted about his sin, he had a soft and tender heart, and he repented. He had a heart for God. Yes, he had some massively huge mistakes in his life, but he had a heart for God, and he turned towards him. And then comes his offspring from Bathsheba, Solomon. Now, things started off pretty well with Solomon. In in, in 1 Kings 3.3, we read that Solomon loved the Lord. But not too long after that, we also read that he loved many foreign women, like a lot. And they led his heart away from devotion and pure devotion to the Lord. So it's, it's amazing. Within the first generation of the king, of the Davidic line, really with David himself and definitely with Solomon, we start to see a decline in the dynasty. And after Solomon, then comes other kings. Some were men of faith. Some, some were, were strong men of faith. Others, not even close. They were really wicked. They, they, they've got the... the, the The nomenclature of they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not really what you want after your name recorded in Scripture. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's too many of those. And then the second section ends in verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah had prophesied that Jeconiah would be taken to Babylon. It was fulfilled in 597 B.C., And so when you get to this point, when you get to this deportation to Babylon, you're thinking the decline is almost complete. Where in the world is the Davidic dynasty? There's no more king in Israel. And certainly, this would have caused doubt for some of the Hebrew people. Would God keep his promises had their failures just been too big for him to continue? But even in the captivity, the grace of God was shown the people of God remained intact in many ways. And, and then Babylon was replaced by Persia. And the people were allowed, even encouraged, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. This happened under Zerubbabel, though, though not a king, but it happened under him. And so you continue to see this grace of God in keeping his people and his promises. And then when we move into the, the third section, to keep this string of 14s together, Jeconiah was, is counted twice, most likely. Because in a sense, with Jeconiah, there were almost two iterations of him because as he was exiled to Babylon, he's imprisoned, but later on he's actually freed from prison and he's elevated and and kind of above many of the other kings, there's like two eras in Jeconiah's life. And so we see this grace and we see him uh, treated really kindly in the court of the king of Persia. And then Matthew just continues on and on and he gives us more and more names. Again, many we don't know a whole lot about but they all move towards the climax of this genealogy, what it's all been pushing towards. Verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, throughout this genealogy, we've read the phrase, and you heard me read it, um, "the the father of, the father of, the father of the father of. It's over and over and over and over again throughout this genealogy. It's one word in Greek. It's part of the rhythm and the flow of the whole story, but all of a sudden it's not there. It changes. Yes, we have Jacob is the father of Joseph, but then we get this switch because Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He's rather the husband of Mary. Mary's the mother. We, we we know that Mary's the mother, but Matthew makes it very clear that there was no male act in the birth of Jesus. This was the virgin with a child. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Folks, this was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was an absolute miracle, a work of God, completely a work of God. Now, Joseph was legally Jesus' father, and so it is through Joseph, um, who was a son of David, that, that the right to David's throne was transferred to this child, to Mary's child, to Jesus. And you continue to see more and more of the grace of God in this genealogy, And verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, this structure is how Matthew chose to write. In all of my reading, no one really knows why but this is what he chose. Number 14 had to be significant for something, and it's what he chose. But really, it doesn't matter that much because the point of the genealogy is abundantly clear. It's that the long-awaited Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, has arrived. The fulfillment of of this long-anticipated waiting and, and looking for the promises to be fulfilled has come in Jesus. Folks, the way Matthew starts, he gives the beginning of the story of a new creation come in the gift of Jesus. Who is this gift of God? It is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies. He's, He's our life and our hope. Matthew connected these promises very clearly, or this birth very clearly with the promises of God with this covenant with Abraham with David he yes he focused on David he puts more weight there but but the whole idea is know that who this Jesus is this Jesus is the messiah he's the one to save he's the one that is fulfilling the prophecy that's bringing a new creation and it's right here in these first 17 verses that hopefully we're not put to sleep by a genealogy but are actually amazed by what God has done and how he did it. God does not abandon his promises. He is utterly and and completely faithful to the very end. He's worked through the course of history, through sin, through deception, through murder, through lying, through adultery, through prostitution, through all kinds of different things. He's worked through it to bring about the fulfillment of his promises, the fulfillment of his covenant. Think about how Genesis 12 says that the nations will be blessed through Abraham and his line. It's what we see in this genealogy. There are at least three women of Gentile descent, at least three, who are not only included in God's family. Okay, it's one thing to, to be brought in. You're, you're part of the family of God, but they're actually in the line of the Messiah. Folks, God is plenty powerful enough to keep his promises. In the midst of our failures, in the midst of the failures of his people throughout history, he is powerful enough to keep his promises. The exile to Babylon, his people were not destroyed, they're kept by his powerful hand. And the hearts of the kings were like channels. The, uh, of water in the hands of the Lord, directing them wherever he wished. We just finished going through Esther. We saw how his providential hand worked more and more than, than we normally see or that, that we actually normally think about, but yet we probably see every single day. God is powerful enough to keep his promises. But what I think is the source of so much comfort in this text and should always be a comfort to us is this genealogy tells us very clearly God did not come to call the righteous and the perfect. He called sinners to himself. Called those who knew they needed him. Who had a soft and a tender heart towards him. He does not ask us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He pours out his grace. So amazing does he pour out his grace upon the guilty and the fallen and the broken and the mess-ups, the ones who at family parties your family doesn't want to talk about. He can pour out his grace upon all of us and that is such a comfort. This genealogy is not a catalog of the greatest and best. Okay, I, I remember, some of you probably remember watching ABC's Wide World of Sports um, when you were younger or whatever, or maybe some of you have never even heard of it, um, and that's okay. But they'd, they'd do this thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. So many of the people included in this genealogy would never have been in the thrill of victory part. They're in the agony of defeat, and yet God's grace is more than powerful enough to grab hold and to change. this, This genealogy is of real and messed up people who did a lot of stupid and faithless things. And that gives me comfort because I know that I do a lot of stupid and faithless things. And yet God can still work through that. And guess what? You do a lot of stupid and faithless things too. And God can and still will work through that. And Jesus Jesus didn't shy away from that part of his background. He identified and he's not ashamed to call us brother and sister in Christ, in him. The thing is, is he didn't come to praise his forebears. He came to save them. And he didn't come to praise us, but to save us. He loves us dearly. And what a, what a beautiful comfort. That's, that's what his name means. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah who will subdue his and our enemies. He's anointed to be our priest. He was anointed to to be the offering, the sacrifice for our sin so that he could fully save us and will fully save us. He's the prophet of God, and it's by him, by the truth, by knowing him, by knowing the truth, that we're set free. So let me close by reading from the great Bishop J.C. Ryle. He said, we should always read this catalog with thankful feelings. We see here that no one who partakes of human nature can be beyond the reach of Christ's sympathy and compassion. Our sins may have been as black and great as those of any whom St. Matthew names, but they cannot shut us out of heaven if we repent and believe the gospel. If Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman whose pedigree contained such names as those we have read today, we need not think that he will be ashamed to call us brethren and to give us eternal life. Glory be to God, to our Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace thank you for how you love us, how you care for us, how we're not out of the reach of your grace and compassion. Lord, renew our hearts. Renew our hearts as we think about Advent, as we think about this first coming, and as we look to the second. Well, you'll set everything right, but in the meantime, Lord, let us rejoice that you're not ashamed to call us your brethren. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.